0: Well, can I begin by saying how privileged I feel to be back here uh, in Newcastle at the Christian Institute and to have been asked to speak to you on something that I think I know something about. In the past, I've had topics assigned to me. I've been very happy to tackle them, but they've been uh, foraging into territory that's not my everyday uh, run-of-the-mill territory. But this time, I've been asked to speak number of occasions on the Old Testament. And the significance and place of the Old Testament in the life of the church is something that I've given quite a bit of thought to over the years. And so I'm very glad to try to share with you some of the insights I've had on this matter, because I believe that it's fundamental to the health of the Christian community that we grapple with some of the issues that are raised by the Old Testament. You see, one of the characteristic features of evangelical Christianity in the 20th century has been what I would call an overly subjective approach to Christianity. The focus of thought, focus of testimony has been on what God is doing for me now. And the centre of religion is taken at the level of personal experience. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that personal experience is of no significance. That would be to depart altogether from what's constitutive of an evangelical testimony. But I still think we've got to assert that what ultimately matters is not what God is doing in me now. What ultimately matters is what God did once for all in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the church's witness fails to do justice to the historical facts and basis of our Christian testimony, if our witness fails to assert the abiding significance of what Scripture tells us is so as fact, then we have imperiled the whole foundation of the faith. And you see, that goes beyond maintaining the the facticity, the factuality of the New Testament. Because the church's constitution, the Bible, embraces more than the New Testament. The truthfulness the reliability of the whole of Scripture has to be maintained. Oh, I know that in terms of our Christian experience, our entry point into Christianity is Christ himself. But we are commanded not to stay simply with the first perception that we have of the content of Christian faith. We're commanded to mature. We're commanded to go on. We're commanded to enter into the deep things of the faith. And as we study the life of Christ, as we meditate on the testimony that he gave, on the mission that he fulfilled, and we've got to do all these things if we're going to grow in faith, before very long we find out that we can't understand Jesus Christ in his life, in his ministry, in his mission, in his testimony, apart from the Old Testament. Not only did he live in a society that was molded by the Old Testament, he came and claimed to be reasserting the standards of the Old Testament. Jesus thought of himself and presented himself as fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament. And we have a less than adequate understanding of Jesus Christ if we neglect the Old Testament. And I'm afraid that's what happens all too often. And the result's an impoverished faith. A faith that's unable to withstand the challenges that confront it because it hasn't got the divinely given ammunition to make the defense that's needed. So, what I'm trying to do in these lectures is to provide a number of entry points into the Old Testament. Not because it's the final level of truth. Not because I think in some ways the Old Testament's more important than the New. I, I don't. But because it's foundational. Without a knowledge of what the Old Testament teaches, we're going to be weak in areas that are vital for the defense of the truth. And you know, that's part of the legacy the 19th century bequeathed to the church. The idea that in some way the Old Testament's primitive, that it's outmoded, that it's a sort of embarrassment to the church, something we could quite well do without. And along with that, from last century... There is a threefold legacy that has sought to undermine the authority of the Old Testament. Three challenges, principally originated last century and they've maintained their strength throughout this. Three challenges to the church taking and vitally asserting the truth of the Old Testament. There was the challenge of the scientific community. And I'm saying that deliberately. I'm not saying the challenge of science. I'm saying the challenge of the scientific community because I believe that there can be no dispute between the facts of science correctly interpreted and the statements of Scripture. Because one's dealing with God's general revelation in the fabric of the cosmos he made. And the other is dealing with his particular revelation in the word of truth, and there can be no inherent contradiction between the two. They are the twofold revelation of the God of truth, who cannot lie. But last century, the majority of the scientific community accepted and promoted a scientific philosophy, a world view that ran counter to biblical truth. It appeared, first of all, in the area of geology. On the basis of fossil evidence, on the basis of what they found when they examined the strata of the rocks, ever longer periods for the formation of the earth were postulated. And if you opened your AV in the early part of last century nearly every edition had in its margin the dates of Archbishop Usher, the evangelical scholar. And you'd have found in page one of Genesis 1, 4004 BC, that was the date that he calculated in a rigorous fashion according to the assumptions he'd made. That was the date that was there And as soon as the scientific community started floating suggestions then of millions of years, this divergence led to inevitable conflict. And in this century, the conflict's been taken up and intensified. It's not just in the area of geology, it's in the area of astrophysics. So that you get dates of 16 to 17 billion years ago, presented as the age of the cosmos, as the age of the earth. the tension between the Old Testament and the scientific community came to fever pitch after 1859 when Darwin published The Origin of the Species by Means of Natural Selection. And as you know, he there used evolution to explain the the origin of species. And because scientists believed that they could validate in some respects what Darwin was saying uh, by empirical testing the majority of the scientific community fell in with what he said and the claim was heard on every side Genesis 1 does not accord with scientific facts and so there began the death of the Christian consensus that underpinned western civilization the view was promoted and accepted that we no longer live in a world that began with the creative word of God, but rather that a world we lived in a world that came from the, the potential that was inherent in some original blob of mud. The view was presented that mankind were no longer bearers of the image of God, but rather mankind represented the current peak of an evolutionary process and were answerable to nothing but the forces of that process it was a basic turnaround in the way people thought through the challenge of the scientific community but the challenge from the scientific community wasn't the only one that the Old Testament had to face there was also the challenge of comparative religion Throughout the 19th century and continuing throughout this, enormous strides have been taken in the discovery and the decipherment of written tablets, written remains from the the ancient, well, the scholars call it the ancient Near East, but you'll get the right area if you think of the Middle East in modern terminology. And as they studied and deciphered these tablets, particularly some from Mesopotamia, Iraq, They found tablets that recorded creation stories, flood stories that seemed to have a number of connections with what was found in the early chapters of Genesis. And those who studied these remains said, ah, now we understand the early chapters of Genesis. They aren't in some sense God-given truth." These are rather the prevailing views that existed in the ancient Near East, in the ancient world, tidied up, improved by Hebrew storytellers. Whereas the other versions from Mesopotamia had a great many pagan gods involved in the process of creation, Israel, with her superior theological insight, rewrote these stories to present only one God as the creator, Yahweh, the God they worshipped. But the net impact of this was to undermine the uniqueness of the Old Testament account and to undermine the idea of divine revelation. And there was a third challenge, the challenge of critical studies. At one level, this was a challenge from within the church. It wasn't something that seemed to come press in upon uh, the church from outside. This was one that was fostered and grew in uh, the, the seminaries of many denominations. And if truth be told, the Free Church of Scotland played a sorry role in that as well. When these scholars looked at the Old Testament text... They decided that the documents they were looking at came from many sources. They had been drawn together from a number of backgrounds. They argued for this on the basis of the different styles they could detect. And in particular, they said there were two different accounts of creation. Two different accounts that you could find. One in Genesis 1... The passage we read, and when we talk about Genesis 1 in this context, we're taking in the first three verses of Genesis 2 as well. One in Genesis 1 and the other in Genesis 2. And it wasn't just that there were different accounts. The point that critical scholars were making was that these different accounts were contradictory. Contradictory one of the techniques they developed for distinguishing the various uh, strands that they they were finding in Scripture uh, was that there were internal, unresolved contradictions. So that it wasn't just a situation of the scriptural accounts set against the researches of other disciplines. It was a case of the scriptural accounts being set one against the other at internal odds these three influences, the influence, the challenge from the scientific community, challenge from the world of comparative religion, the challenge from the uh, study, the, the critical study of uh, scripture, they've continued into this century. And as a result, Genesis 1 and the doctrine of creation has not become the grand entrance into scriptural truth. It's become instead a stumbling block in the way of many. A stumbling block when it comes to the church's own appreciation of the message of scripture, but equally being used by many to, as an excuse for turning away From the message of the whole of Scripture. Now, with that as background, what I want to do tonight is to explore two major themes with you. I want to look at how the evangelical community has responded to the challenges that are current against the doctrine of creation. And I want also to look at the truths that are being taught by Genesis 1. The truths that we have to grasp so that we can grapple with the world that we face day by day. There are these two basic areas that I'd like to take up. The responses then that have been made to the challenges... Obviously, there have been many different ones. I can't attempt to do justice to the contributions of all the individuals who've worked in this area. What I'm going to do is classify very broad types of response. Some of them I disagree with. Others, I can't make up my mind about. That covers me satisfactorily. (laughs) But first of all... An approach that I'm quite happy to say I disagree with there are those who accept the results of modern critical and scientific study and they're evangelical and they say we have a gospel and we're going to preach that gospel and if science or comparative religion our critical study says this, that or the other about the Old Testament. Well, we can live with that. So long as no one stops us from preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, I have a great sympathy for that at the level that they're showing for what is first and foremost. There be no doubt about it. Preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified is the church's task. But I wonder, I claim, that you can't go on doing that successfully if you're doing it on the basis of a flawed scripture. Because these people are quite happy to say, well, the Bible may have mistakes. It may well have spoken in the language of past civilizations. It may well have used terms that that reflected how people in ancient days thought about geography or science or whatever. But you can't say that without the very real danger of compromising the whole truth of Scripture. Let me put it this way. On what basis do you think you can draw a line after the Old Testament and stop that sort of thinking there? On what basis do you think you can say, well, I'm quite happy. I I I can take Scripture and I find that I can stop it here. And all right, there may be mistakes in that first part. I can live with that as long as I'm left with the gospel. But that same scientific point of view uh, that will challenge the doctrine of creation is the scientific point of view that challenges the idea of a miracle. Is a scientific point of view that challenges the notion of divine intervention? And I very much doubt if you can concede the argument on creation and maintain the argument about the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The arguments that are deployed will be the same. And what's more, I don't think that you can say the Old Testament doesn't matter and do, reality to the, do justice to the reality of the teaching of Jesus Christ? Because you're saying that his view of the Old Testament was wrong as well. And how can you base your religion on the views of someone when you're saying these views are flawed and fundamentally so? I don't like the approaches that say, well... Let's put to one side the Old Testament. Let's leave it to to the scientist and the biblical critic. And we'll get on with the essence of New Testament truth. Because the same arsenal that will undermine the Old Testament will be deployed also in the New Testament. And you're left with no Christian message at all. And then you can switch to the other end of the spectrum. There are those evangelicals who argue, well, the obvious meaning of scripture must stand. If there's some conflict between scripture and science, then it's science that will ultimately have to give way. And they say, look at how often the scientific consensus changes. Uh, Indeed, was it not just last week? Someone pointed out to me a report about the, the Hubble Space Telescope and some findings uh, from there that had managed to reduce the, the, the idea of the Earth as 16 billion years old uh, down to 8 billion years old. And people say, well, if the consensus can chop and change things by 8 billion years just like that, may it not be that the consensus itself, the scientific consensus, is, is also liable to radical change. now there's strength in that position because it's presenting and seeking to maintain what is the obvious sense of scripture if you read Genesis 1 as we did just now they say the obvious sense of scripture is that you're talking there about six days perhaps days of 24 hours and days that took place in sequence not so very long ago. Perhaps no one would nowadays defend Archbishop Usher's 4004. But don't decry him. He put a lot of hard work into that. And it was by no means an arbitrary figure pulled out of a hat. Some of his assumptions may need to be modified. But as a piece of scholarship, it was tremendously exacting and well thought out. A piece of scholarship. But no one will, I think, defend 4004. But we're talking perhaps of 10, 50,000 years ago on this basis. But you can still legitimately ask what is it that makes the obvious sense of Scripture so very obvious? Is the obvious sense of Scripture something that Scripture itself has determined? Or is it only obvious because of the presuppositions that we're bringing to Scripture? And may it not be the case that our presuppositions are faulty. Just as these people, those espousing this point of view, are prepared to point the finger at the scientists' presuppositions, uh, whereby the the, the ethos that comes about that says the materialistic ethos of so many of the the grand scientific pronouncements of the the popularizers of science, whereas these materialistic assumptions may be flawed, might it not be the case that the presuppositions with which we approach scripture are false? We certainly can't dismiss the question. We've certainly got to ask ourselves what is it that we're supposing? Because you see, we've forgotten nowadays about the heartache that was in the church for a number of centuries after Galileo. It wasn't just the Roman Catholic Church that thought it had a scriptural basis to reject his views. Two centuries later, 200 years after Galileo, there are still Protestant Reformed scholars espousing the belief in a flat earth. Now that battle's been won. I haven't come across flat earthers uh, recently. I'm told there are still some in America, but you'll find anything in America. But what we've got to be sure of is that the challenge is not just a matter of us saying well there's six successive 24 hour days on a straightforward approach to scripture and we're doing that because of presuppositions that we are taking for granted and are making as the modern equivalents of those who opposed Galileo. It's a question that we have to be careful about. And there are a great many who then say, well, we don't want to challenge the inspiration of Scripture. We don't want to challenge the inerrancy of Scripture. But we must probe whether our approach to understanding Genesis 1 is adequate. And these probings can take a number of forms. First one I'd like to mention is the Concordist approach. And it says, well, if you read Genesis 1 and make adequate allowance for the language used, and particularly for the time scale involved, then the matter can be resolved. They say there is a tremendously startling correspondence uh, between the order of the events in Genesis 1, and though the order of events as posited by modern science. Indeed, there are many who are currently arguing that in the beginning, God created heaven and earth, is the biblical equivalent of the Big Bang. And there are those who are saying, and I've spoken to some scientists who have this idea, Uh, They they say, yes, we can follow things back and back in our point of view, but when we come to what started right back there so many billions of years ago, we can't explain that. And they're prepared to to accept uh, some idea that divine uh, intervention was involved to start the process off. And so a concordist approach is really saying that if you can make allowances in Genesis 1 for a different timescale, you can probably get a harmony between the results of modern science and the scriptural testimony. Some of them argue that the days of creation were not consecutive. There are some who say, oh yes, it was 24-hour days, but there are big gaps in between them. One early variant of that is called the gap theory and it posited a major chasm between the first and second verses of Genesis 1. And in that way there could be harmony between an old earth and a relatively recent date for the creation of mankind. That particular approach founders on the grammar of the second verse of Genesis 1. If you've got an NIV, there's a footnote to that passage that says, Or possibly became. Now the earth became, rather than was, formless and empty. But it's one thing I'm fairly certain about, that that footnote in the NIV is not the result of good scholarship. It represents the force of a particular ecclesiastical tradition in the southern states of America. Uh, it's the the lingering influence of the Schofield Bible and American fundamentalism that dictated that note rather than any uh, scholarly presupposition. However, there is a very popular variety of thought that focuses on the word day eh? and says in Scripture itself Day can be used to cover a very much longer period of time. Look how often the Old Testament talks about the coming day of the Lord. And who thinks then that it's talking merely of a 24-hour period? Using that longer time span, they feel certain that a broad similarity can be detected between the Genesis narrative and the findings of modern science. Modern science, that is, in the areas of geology and astrophysics. (coughs) There's no concession being made to evolutionary thought. Uh, Evolutionary thought seems to be absolutely ruled out uh, by the language of Genesis 1. Uh, This concordist approach has God at the beginning of each epoch, intervening sovereignly, saying once more, let there be, and shaping restarting, uh, starting off uh, a whole process of creationary creationary development. Undoubtedly, there was subsequent change, uh, but change within the boundaries that God had specified. But there's a big problem left still. Genesis 1 doesn't just talk about days. It talks about evenings and mornings. Now there's some scriptural evidence for the word day being used in an extended sense in the Old Testament. And if you approach the matter from the point of view of the English language, we often use the words evening and morning in an extended sense. We talk about the evening of someone's day. Days, the period of time when a comfortable old age, or the the morning of some movement when it is starting up. It's much more difficult to justify such a usage in Hebrew. In the East, evening and morning are not typically periods of time. They are typically points in time. And you can realise this because, in fact, physically, the sun sets so very much more quickly and rises so very much more quickly. The, the phrase that occurs time and again in Genesis 1 it can, I think, be more accurately um, rendered. There came nightfall and there came daybreak a third or a fourth or whatever day. The days that are being described there begin at dawn. It's not, the AV gives quite the wrong idea there was evening and there was morning day X as if you took the period of evening which was the period of darkness presumably and added it to the period of morning which was presumably the period of daylight and you thus got a 24 hour day. That's not what's being said at all. It says there came evening to end the period of light. And there came daybreak. To end the period of darkness. And that constituted the first day. And then the second day began. When light shone forth once more. Nightfall and daybreak. Are punctual rather than continual. They refer very much more to a sort of point of time. Like noon or midday. Than to a period of time. Like afternoon. So the day is being described were days that began at dawn. And the language used, and this is the nub of the objection, the language used is such as to lead us to think of the sort of day and the length of day that we're familiar with. Uh, I find it very difficult uh, to see why the words evening and morning were added there unless it was to lead the reader in that direction. Suppose they weren't there. Suppose each day had just ended by saying the first day, and this was the second day, and this was the third day. I personally would have no problems at all in, if not accepting, at least in not challenging an approach that said these days could be as long as you want. But the language that's there, introducing deliberate mention of evening and morning, deliberately focusing onto the, the thought that this is the sort of day that you're used to seems to me to be quite at variance with this being long days if someone could show me evidence from the ancient world either in hebrew or from the surrounding languages where evening and morning were used in this sort of extended sense i'd begin to be prepared to change but that evidence just doesn't seem to be there And it's the force of that objection that's led some people to the idea of, oh, well, let's have 24-hour days, and then let's have big, long gaps between them. But I can't find that in the text either. It doesn't seem natural at all. So on the one hand, there's that concordist approach. On the other hand, there's another one that's now become very common in evangelical circles. And it says, yes, the language of Genesis 1 is talking about days that are 24-hour days. But it says, you have to understand these days in terms of an artistic framework. It's an extended parable. Look, they say, how structured Genesis 1 is. Look how often you get the same sorts of sequence, the same sorts of expression. Ten times God says, Of these ten words, three concern mankind, seven the rest of the creation. Uh, Three times you hear it said, let there be uh, for the creatures in the heavens. Seven times for different verbs are used for the world below. And they go through Genesis 1, picking out the, the number of times various phrases occur. And say, look. This is a text that's been composed by an artist who's using numbers, who's using repetition to present a message. This is no ordinary history, they say. This is a work that's written by a a master thinker with profound and expansive thought reflecting on the world that God has made. I get very worried myself when somebody tells me that a portion of scripture has a very profound message because I generally find that means they're trying to avoid the obvious message and substitute something else. And I, do, do watch. If you're reading any book and they tell you this is very profound, it generally means just that. But they have a point, the people who present this framework approach. that you have to be sure that you're reading the text correctly. Sometimes this causes us no problems. When Jesus says, go tell that fox Herod, you don't think that Herod's got a bushy tail. You recognize it for a figure of speech. And they say, when Jesus tells the parable of the sower and the seed, you know you're dealing with a parable. You don't. The, the truth of what Jesus says doesn't depend on being able to give the, the the longitude and latitude of the field he was talking about, or being able even potentially to name uh, the name of the sower. Uh, the, it was a picture. It was a, a verbal picture, and the truth that was being conveyed was quite apart from uh, the, the historicity of the the message. And they say that's the way you have to approach Genesis one. It's this master thinker, Moses. Uh, Who is reflecting on the truth of God's creation and who is presenting a theological message in the form of an extended parable? Well, it's not without its difficulties. There is the very simple answer that there may be features of balance and repetition and symmetry in the creation accounts. Just because that's the way it was. God created in a measured and orderly fashion. And therefore an account of what he did is similarly measured and ordered. And there are also other texts of scripture. Which on the face of it accept these days as literal days. Especially the commandment. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. The sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. The patterning between man's days and God's days in the creation week certainly leads one in the direction of supposing that they are days of similar length. And especially the difficulty with the parabolic or framework approach is that you don't know where it stops. At what level is it illegitimate to press the details of this picture? For instance, as we read the chapter, notice how often it says, after its kind, after their kind. Is that part of the theological teaching? Some of the people who espouse the framework approach want to say no, because they want to open the door to evolutionary thought. But those very phrases, after its kind and after their kind, are the great bulwark against the thought of evolution, against the thought of one species moving across into another. God set out lines, God set out limits against which, uh, over which uh, the species may not change and, and, and evolve. Certainly evolution in its grosser forms ruled out, but how do you know that on their approach? They seem to be putting an approach onto the text. Well, I've perhaps taken too long. You can see from all that that I'm not going to provide you with a quick and easy solution to the problems of Genesis 1. I've indicated I think there are some solutions that can be ruled out. I don't think the gap theory can be maintained. I don't think it's possible to claim that, that Genesis 1 is, is poetry in some sense, uh, so that it's, got some, uh, it's no longer got any reference to the real world. There are Christian evangelical scholars who are approaching a very real problem in interpretation, how we're to understand Genesis 1, and I find them doing it along three different line, lines of approach, along the literal approach, the Concordist approach and the framework approach none of them is without its problems but the men who are engaged in these efforts are men uh, whose Christian integrity I'm in no way going to impugn and I think that we've got to recognise that the matter is not yet settled now if you're the same as my students you'll not be happy leaving it at that And so they put me in a corner, I'm, I'm doing this for you, you're too polite to do this. And they say, yes, but wh- wh- where do you stand? You know, you you've said, <clears throat> there's this and there's that and there's t'other and they're all honourable men. Well, I must confess that the way I phrase it is in terms of well, statistical testing techniques. I take the literal approach as the null hypothesis. It is the one that is obvious. It is the one that the, the text immediately suggests to the ordinary reader. And I argue that any other approach has got to disprove it. Not just to make its own case plausible, but to undermine the other approach. And in terms of the biblical evidence, that hasn't happened yet. But I'm, I'm not saying that it may not happen. I can imagine there being found a tablet not provided by some forger but a genuine tablet uh, that could show in some context in the ancient world that evening and morning were used in metaphorical senses of extended periods of time and if that were to happen then I would be prepared to reconsider my views on the Concordist approach. I... Not quite sure how a judge and what I'm waiting for in the framework approach, uh, it's not as plausible, but it's not to be ruled out. And what I really want to emphasize is the need for Christian charity in this matter, not anathematizing those of another point of view, but recognizing the general dific- genuine difficulties, that these are matters that have to be grappled with, and then being prepared to say that this is something that we will have to work on within the evangelical community. Now I want to go on to the other side of the matter I want to raise. You see, if the evangelical community can at least say, well, here are a number of approaches, we're not going to anathematize one or the other. We're going to move forward. We're then in a position to do the really vital task which is to maintain stoutly the truths that are expressed in Genesis 1. The interpretative framework is important, and there are many vital questions engaged there. But if we're so inward-looking on that matter, we are losing out on the very area where we need the teaching of Genesis 1 to enable us to combat the errors of today. And I think that it's possible for those who take differing views, provided their views that are doing justice to the, the message, the infallibility, the, the, the inspiration of scripture, there are views, there are message, there's a message that must be proclaimed on the basis of God, as God the creator. Look at it this way. Genesis 1 comes to us and doesn't attempt to prove the existence of God. It just says God is. And that's something where I think we have a lesson to learn. We have a lesson to learn in approaching the world not to get tied down in the philosophy of the existence of God but to proclaim the message of what he's done. And as we do that we can see that Genesis 1 takes on and counters a great many false views of God. Prevalent in our society is the idea of materialism. Not materialism in the sense of have as many Goods, wealth, possessions as you want, but in the sense that matter's eternal. That the ultimate thing that exists in the universe is stuff. And against this, Genesis 1 teaches that God is eternal. That God is above matter. That God is the creator of matter. That if you probe and you analyze and you go back, you do not go back to something but to someone. And that is an essential Christian perspective. And if we lose sight of it, if we're unwilling to maintain that stoutly, we're losing sight of the whole ethos of Christianity. Genesis 1 also takes on pantheism, very popular from the coming in again to our thinking from the East. Pantheism teaches that everything is God. That God's in everything. That everything is in some sense divine. Genesis 1 emphasizes the separation that exists. There is God separate from his creation and above it. You can't reconcile Genesis 1 with pantheism. Nor can you reconcile Genesis 1 with dualism. This sort of thinking, again prevalent in the East that ultimately there are two forces in the universe, one good and one evil, battling for superiority. Genesis 1 declares the existence of one good God. And furthermore, it declares and asserts that all that he created was good, very good. And perhaps also we could mention the fact that Genesis 1 Decries polytheism. Perhaps we don't think of that as being so modern a problem. But it was the problem of the day uh, when Moses was writing. Polytheism that there are a plurality of gods. Gods that often fought against one another. Gods who's fighting one with the other perhaps explained uh, some of the disorder uh, that could be uh, observed in the world. Genesis 1 declares The uniqueness of God. Indeed it goes out of its way. Moses goes out of his way to declare. Various elements. Various of the gods and goddesses. Of the pantheons of his day. To be the products of divine creation. He deliberately strips of divine status. uh, The things that were in the surrounding nations. Which so often proved alluring to Israel. That's why the sun and the moon are referred to in such an oblique way in Genesis 1. The greater light and the lesser light. So happens that the Hebrew word for sun and moon were also used by the Canaanites for their sun god and their moon god. And Moses will not have anything to suggest that there's any existence behind the sun god and the moon god. Even by using the ordinary words for sun and moon, instead he talks of the greater light and the lesser light. And then, at the end of that verse, as an afterthought, and the stars also. You can't quite catch it in English. Our translations have to put in something like, he made the stars also, so as to avoid suggesting that the lesser right ruled the night and the stars but it's very clear in the Hebrew, the stars are tucked in at the end, the stars that were so often divinized, thought of as gods and goddesses, are just mentioned. God made them too. There's nothing to them. It's not that he's saying that the God of Israel is to be thought of as the supreme God, and there are other gods as well. It is an assertion in stark terms that there is none other but he, that there is no one who can challenge him. He is uniquely God. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be after me, as Isaiah was to say later. But Genesis 1 also provides us with a picture for the interpretation of the whole of scripture. It is a picture of the sovereign control of the unique God. If you read some of the epics of creation narratives and surrounding nations, they talk in terms of a struggle. They talk in terms of various forces being subdued, various gods and goddesses being slain. And when you come to Genesis 1, you get a totally different picture. Some of the words may be the same, but then if you're talking about heaven and sky and the ocean you've got ordinary words that are the same the whole ethos is different no hint of a struggle in genesis 1 it's a picture of the effortless control of god and it's a picture of the power of god that's something that perhaps is different between our thought and um ancient thought if we we're going to talk about god the creator and the wonder of his creation I don't know why it is, but you tend to find people looking at something rather small. Look at the wonder of this flower and the delicacy and the intricacy of all that's to be found there. In Hebrew, thought it's the opposite way. You want to know about God the creator? Look at the storm. Look at the thunder. Look at the lightning. Look at the earthquake. Look at something big and great and powerful. And that's the picture of Genesis 1. Not that God didn't create the flower or, or the intricate cell or whatever. But it's a picture of God, powerful, by the word of God were the heavens made, and the starry host by the breath of his mouth. And allied to this is the transcendence of God. He is above, he is other than his creation. And it's echoed very much in David's prayer in First Chronicles 29 verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. And that, I think, is one of the themes we have to catch. It is the key that I was talking about for the whole of Scripture from Genesis 1. It is presenting God as sovereign. It is presenting God as in control. It is presenting God as the king. It is a theme that occurs. and We'll mention it again. I forget the order in which I'm going to speak to you, but in coming weeks we'll mention it again. And it comes through into the New Testament. The idea of God, the ruler, the king. You see, what have you got here a picture of? Well, notice how often in Genesis 1, God names things. Now, in the ancient world, if you had the right to name something, it meant that you were the ruler, you were the superior. I'll not mention, although I will, Adam naming Eve. But think how often it is. <laughs> think how often it is later on oh, when some of the kings of Judah, particularly, get their names changed. They're captured by the Egyptians or they're put in the, on the throne and they get a different name. That is, or from the Babylonian kings. That's the Babylonian or the, the Assyrian or the Egyptian or whoever kings saying you're under me, I have the right to give you whatever name I want. And on a much grander scale, when God names, it is God as the king. It is God as the king saying, this is the realm that I have made, it is under my authority, and he is the one who is making divine announcements about it. The the picture of Genesis 1 is not of someone making tentative suggestions Let there be, perchance it won't. It is the divine king with authority, bringing into existence what will continue under him. And it is a picture of all-encompassing authority. And the point has often been made, it is the picture of intelligible authority. And that's what's been behind the whole rise of modern science. That's why modern science arose in the West and not in the East. Because in the Christian worldview, there is order, there is an intelligible order in the realm of nature. It hasn't happened by chance, it has happened because it is the expression of the divine purpose of the divine king who said, Let there be, and structured it. We can go and look at the natural world, and what is there is there by divine thought. There is also one other thought I'd I'd just like to present to you just now. I don't know how much you're into theology. We're all perhaps more influenced by it, even though we'd say, "Well, I'm no theologian. I think there's also in Genesis 1 something that's different uh, from the way theologians present matters. Very often, creation is talked about as God starting things off As if Genesis 1 were about initial constitutive acts. And God's providence, his looking after this world afterwards, is something quite different. Creation on one side, providence on the other. And theologians often make quite a difference between them. That's not the way of Genesis 1. These words, these divine announcements are the edicts of the king not only to bring into existence, but to maintain in existence. It's not just what was true initially. It is God structuring and ordering the ongoing nature of the cosmos he's brought into existence. I'm not trying to confuse creation and providence, but I am trying to say that if you read Genesis 1 time and again, you find hints That these are ongoing arrangements, that this is a program of action, divinely instituted and divinely maintained. But there's one other level that we've got to approach it at, and that is the level that God as creator implies human responsibility. The constitution of mankind is irrevocably determined by the divine decree. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule. I'd prefer the translation so that they may rule. Over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Genesis 1.26 Humanity was created by the sovereign Lord to exercise a specific function within his kingdom. The king of all creation created a subsidiary, a subordinate king who is given a grand place and a grand task but one determined by God. God gave them his blessing. He blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over them. He set the terms of mankind's mandate over the earth. And from that you can develop the Christian green philosophy. That our use of this world, our actions in this world are not at our whim, are not to be determined by what we ultimately think is right or wrong. They are We are God's stewards in this world and we are answerable to him for the way we use his creatures and the way we use his creation. And, of course, our answerability and responsibility goes far beyond the environmental. You see, evolutionary religion... And it is a religion. It can be very comforting. The thought of people as accountable to God is disquieting to the conscience. Many would blot it out. And evolution gives them a respectable reason for doing so. If human beings are just the evolved product of some protoplasmic jelly, then God's not in the picture anymore. God's at best separate from the world in some sort of deistic picture. He's got no real claim on us. And I think that, that is the real reason why evolutionary thinking is so popular. That it is appealing to man in rebellion against God. Because it says to him, With a, in a fool's paradise, you're not, there is no one for you to answer to. But you see, God made us. And that's the basis of human responsibility. We are answerable to the maker, the king, the sovereign lord, who has the right to set the standards and impose the pattern that pleases him, and who has the right to have a day of reckoning. The reality of God, the judge of all the earth, flows directly from the reality of God the creator of heaven and earth. The one is implied by the other. But God made us in his image, after his likeness. Oh, there have been many controversies over the centuries as to what precisely that involves. I'm not mentioning them just now. But what it is saying is that human beings will never be able adequately to assess who they are either individually or collectively, until they can identify themselves in relation to God. You define what a human being is and you must define it. Your definition must do justice to the reality of the constitution of mankind in the image of God. We will never succeed in the search for human authenticity. We'll never be able to assert our truly human identity without also knowing God. And come to think of it, and I wish I'd thought of it before I left Edinburgh because I'd get the quote right. That's the essence of Calvinism. That's where Calvin begins the first, book, first chapter of his Institutes. Basically, by saying there are two types of knowledge knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. And if we wish to advance in the one, we have to advance in the other. And if we wish to come to a knowledge of who we are, we can't do it in isolation. We have to do it relating who we are to God. True humanness, true humanism, is a quest for understanding all our potential. The humanism that masquerades as scientific humanism or existential humanism or whatever, is is a grotesque parody. It leaves us merely at, I was going to say the level of the animal, but I'm not even sure you can understand the animals without relating them to God. Whereas true humanity must have a full definition of what we are, and that takes in, must encompass, God, our creator. And it's on that basis, on the basis of seeing the dignity, the worth, the fullness of the one whom God made ruler over the works of God's hands, the one whom God destined to have everything in the created realm under his feet, that we see both the majesty of humanity and also the answerability and responsibility. When we think of God as creator, When we study the message of Genesis 1, it's not just a message that leaves us with some theology that's up in the air, uh, that's full of big words, as so often theology seems to have when it tries to grapple with the reality of God. It is a theology that comes and says to us, This is how your world came into being, this is how you came into being. And you can neither understand yourself nor your world unless you reckon with the God who brought them all from nothing into existence, and the God who maintains them in existence, and the God who will require an answer from you as to what you did with all that he gave. God the Creator.
1: Thank you very much indeed, uh, Professor Macari. A great deal there for us to think about. You very kindly said that you would uh, allow us to ask some questions or indulge in some comments or discussion, and we've got a a short time to do that. Um, And I invite comments and discussion or questions. uh, And don't be shy about that. It's always difficult, I think, to ask the first question, because it always sounds so foolish, but it's not going to be tonight, because Reg is going to ask it.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I think that comes fairly naturally, Reg. So <laughs> <laughs> <you can. laughs> no, it was, um, it was, in the place of the
2: car, it said mm-hmm. that if a tablet were discovered, which... Um, Might give the meaning of a period to morning or evening, then he might reconsider his position. I'm wondering how he he would reflect upon that in relation to the (coughs) sufficiency of Scripture. I mean, surely we don't need the tablet, will be what that doctrine would perhaps require.
0: Sometimes we do need outside things to open our eyes when we have, in a culture or in a civilization, uh, got into a rut. How was it that in the, am I getting my centuries correct, the 13th century, say, the vast majority of Christendom thought that the scriptures taught that the earth was flat? It sounds laughable now. It's a sign of how far thinking's moved. It was because we were not interpreting scripture correctly. We were coming with the vision of Greek philosophy to a large extent, Uh, and approaching using that to to as a filter to understand Scripture. So that I I am saying that there is an ongoing learning process, and that uh, the message of Scripture is there, but that it is distinctly possible that we might be misunderstanding it. I'm more hesitant over the other approach, not so much the long-day approach uh, as over the um, framework approach. Because one would have expected, if you look at the rest of scripture, uh, parables are flagged. Uh, Language that is metaphorical is either obviously metaphorical or is in a situation uh, where you get a... I can think of what my students would be saying to me now. What about the Song of Solomon? Um, (laughs) LAUGHTER However, even saying that, it's still the case that largely in scripture, you you know the parables come in a form that indicates this is a parable. The kingdom of God is like, and away you go. There's nothing to suggest that in Genesis 1. And I find it very difficult uh, to know what sort of uh, new knowledge or what sort of new insight would make that a reasonable approach. But here we are, we're grappling over the centuries, but we're coming back over three and a half thousand years. And we're trying to work out what would have been a possible understanding for Moses as he wrote it and for those who originally heard him. And I think that God has blessed this generation with a vast increase of knowledge that helps clarify questions of that sort. It... Um, mm-hmm it doesn't seem to me to imperil the, the sufficiency of scripture uh, in that uh, it's the sufficiency of human understanding, insufficiency of human understanding that, that's been pointed up
1: I wish to continue as an student yes the question
2: that I guess is related to the last one um, in the three ways of responding that you so helpfully outlined, the first was those who would ardently preach the gospel of Christ crucified as central, and yet when reflecting on the Old Testament would be ambiguous and would accept that perhaps there are errors in the Old Testament, if I've understood mm-hmm. what you were saying correctly. How does that relate to the question of what is an evangelical, Or how do you define an evangelical?
0: <laughs> oh, you're because, better than my <laughs> yeah well if one takes uh, a number of items you can think of a belief in the trinity a belief in the deity of christ a belief normally evangelicalism focuses on a belief in the doctrine of atonement personal sin and and uh, forgiveness made available through the atoning death of christ now perhaps there are others i should mention as well but those come to mind straight away you can think of a sort of evangelical statement that's drawn up by various organizations i've never asked what the christian institute's actually based on (laughs) Um, but you, you get that and there's a consensus and i think these people are being inconsistent because they think they can hold this and at the same time say we can let the old testament slip but the reason that there's inconsistency is that if you're prepared to say well it may very well have been that this miracle didn't occur with Elisha, or you know, we'll we'll have the Israelites going through not the the Red Sea or some other body of water, but perhaps a handful of people coming out as escaped slaves or something like that. You, you're actually undermining the whole thought of divine intervention in history. You're undermining the whole thought of what we call the miraculous. And although you're not setting off to and you're not starting in the first stage undermining the New Testament testimony that you're trying to maintain, in effect, the arguments that you're accepting on the one hand can be used to demolish everything else you've got. And I, I, I just don't think it can be done consistently. There have been institutions that have tried. Uh, as someone said uh, of four-point Calvinism, and I forget quite what four-point Calvinism is just now, but the, the point about it was that it—it's you can teach it for one generation, it's the next generation that's got the problems. And if you uh start with a view of scripture where you're going to um downgrade the old testament you you may very well be able to maintain an evangelical witness for that generation but you in the next gener you get into a cycle of an ever decreasing reverence not just for the Old testament but for the whole of scripture it's it's almost the uh, sort of position that reflects the the, the early heretic Marcion who didn't like the Old Testament didn't like most of the New Testament decided to get his own canon of the bits he liked Uh, and you go way off into the spiritual wilderness Uh, so what I'm really saying is that I, I I have some sympathy for these men saying well look we're being distracted we've got a task of evangelizing let's get on with that and let's blot out these other questions I don't think you can... I'm not saying your evangelism won't be blessed. I'm not saying that the task you're going to set yourself isn't going to be useful. But I am saying that the, the heritage you're bequeathing to the next generation has a lot more problems in it than the one you got. Thank you.
2: Yes? At the beginning of the lecture, uh, Professor Mackay outlined the neglect of the Old Testament and the reasons for the neglect and because of that he indicated that we are depleted or deprived in this generation does he ever see a time when that might be reversed so we may become more enriched what happened for instance during the great revival was there a a surge of interest in the whole Scripture?
0: Unda- you, 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 you
2: portray a very uh, poor
0: situation at the present moment. Yes, I, I, and I think that emphasizing the Old Testament, I might be not painting the picture as grimly as I see it. Um, there, it seems to me, that there is a, a worrying lack of content... New Testament content as well as Old Testament content, that we have a a generation who are not mature Christians. Now, I'm not saying this is the first generation, and I I don't know the situation round about here, but relating it to the Scottish situation, and I don't think it would be all that different. If you go back a generation or two, Even the the, the children ordinarily went to Sunday school. They had a knowledge of the facts of Scripture. And when later on in life they they were converted, God was able to use that early deposit of knowledge and build on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, We we now have a generation, perhaps over two generations, that know nothing of Scripture that very well, I'm not uh, saying that when they're converted, their conversion isn't genuine, but they've got a massive amount of, of knowledge to make up. And they don't seem to realize it. And they're very susceptible to being led astray by the latest trend, by the latest fad. Whereas having a knowledge of the whole counsel of God, having a knowledge, being able to see that The sweep, and this is lecture three, being able to see the sweep of God's actions over history gives you an ability to look at where you are now with far greater understanding. And that's what people lack. And it's it's something, it's, it's very much a 20th century fault. You know, if you look at any scholarly discipline, scientific discipline, a journal article written more than ten years ago is dismissed as of irrelevance. Uh, books that are written more than a few years ago, what have they got to do with it? Uh, there's the arrogance of 20th century man and woman um, that, you know, we know it all, and what's gone before is of no relevance. And that is when, when you get someone coming out of that background into Christian circles they very readily seem to think they know it all and are very ready to dismiss not only the history of the church but the whole testimony of scripture. God's given us the whole of scripture and if there is a maturing of Christian faith or a time of revival, and I think of those as perhaps different processes, they're not totally different, but if there's a maturing of the individual's faith or more widespread revival, there is an intense interest in the message of God's word And that builds up the church, gives a a foundation that's able to withstand the pressures and to interpret what's going on in the world for what it is. So that the warnings of scripture are not to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. The only way is to have an anchor that is securely grounded in the whole counsel of God's scripture.
1: This will have to be the last question. Let's, let's take it here. Thank you. Um,
2: have you come across a um, discovery of a thing called the um, septenary design of the scriptures, of the Hebrew and Greek scriptures? Um, I, I ask this because it is um, something which I've only just discovered, and I'm puzzled that it's not more widely known. Because it's claimed through this that the the way the uh, words um, of the Old Testament and indeed of the New Testament in Greek are made up um, there's patterns of sevens which is God's favorite number in um, the whole of the makeup of the text of the Old Testament and uh, of the new and uh, the Um, It goes on to say that this is, in fact, a, a proof of the divine inspiration of Scripture, a mathematical and scientific proof.
0: I haven't probably read about the most recent that you're talking about. I haven't heard it expressed in quite the septenary principle. But this is something that's been going around for a while, Genesis 1-1 has 1 seven words in the original, and Genesis 1-2 is twice seven words in the original. And if you look at Genesis 1-40, you get a precise multiple, I forget which, of number of names for God. And you can do this throughout the whole of Scripture. Um, it is... The area of Scriptural numerics is one that's to be treated with very great caution. Um... Can can I say something? Just I'm not. I don't know precisely which work you're referring to, but I was rereading, strangely enough, just the other night, there an old critique. And if anybody's in, into this area of scriptural numerics and wants it critiqued, I strongly recommend a little pamphlet you can get by uh, the American Old Testament scholar O.T. Alice, called Biblical Numerics, uh, where he dealt with. Works that the particular person he was giving a critique uh, of—I don't think anybody's ever heard of him now—but the criticism he's making is very valid. And normally, it's presented that three, seven, and ten are numbers of great significance in Scripture. And uh, Alice was uh, reviewing this work that was putting this forward, and uh, he then found that this gentleman found that if something occurred a multiple of three times this meant this was a highly significant occurrence if it was one less than a multiple of three times it meant that it was significant in terms of some deficiency and if it was one more than a multiple of three times it was significant in terms of some greater emphasis needed and then Alice stood back a bit and said you know you've covered all numbers that way and that is the problem that occurs in a great many of these numerical approaches. That, well, the first thing to watch is to make sure the numerical approach is based on the original text, because obviously anything that's in a translation is quite arbitrary. But you, you can, if you give yourself enough numbers to start off with, 3, 7, and 10, and you allow various ways of modifying it, you can cover almost any combination of numbers in a verse or in a thought, There's no no principle ever really stated as to why it is a particular number in any particular verse or the number of times something is repeated. You go through and you count and then you look at the numbers you've got and on the basis of those numbers you try and attach some significance to them. It's a mechanistic uh, approach to scripture that seems highly arbitrary. Many of those who engage in it are, are very devout people but they're falling into the trap of looking at the letter rather than the spirit, of being so engaged in the minutiae of scripture, nothing wrong with paying attention to the details of scripture, but being so engaged in the the jots and tittles that they forget the weightier matters of the law. And their basic analysis of the jots and tittles is often fundamentally flawed, because they're working without any controls you know if if you if you sit down with a number grid and cross off all the threes all the multiples of ten multiples of three multiple of seven and then you allow some sort of principle of deficiency and you've covered everything and you've proved nothing now don't get me wrong there are passages where three and seven and ten are significant It is significant that there were ten commandments. Scripture often emphasizes, it doesn't call them the ten commandments, the ten words, but ten was there as a symbol of fullness. And there are places where numbers, particularly in the book of Revelation, are used symbolically. I'm not denying that. But if you're going to go around and say, well, I'll get the significance of this chapter by counting how many times God appears in it or how many times there's a reference to this or that, I think there's a mode of interpreting scripture that's way off being.
2: Can, can I say that this discovery is, is much deeper, um, it's, it's integral in, in the whole makeup of, the, of the, the, the letters and the words of the language. Um, it was actually discovered by a man who was an agnostic He knew Hebrew thoroughly um, and he was a mathematician as well. And he was just reading um, the, the Hebrew scriptures as a matter of literary interest, and he noticed these patterns, and then he, he went further into it. And um, he eventually... Dis- I'll, I'll, I'll give you a copy of the text. I guess I'd be pleased to look at it. But he went, he went, he went so deeply into it that he discovered that no man could possibly have, have, have written the scriptures in, in that particular way, with those particular patterns. Um, uh, it, it is absolutely mind-blowing, Professor. Yeah, well, it, it, I'm surprised you haven't heard of that particular one. I'm, puzz- I'm, puzzled. I'm puzzled that it's not more widely known.
1: Uh,
0: well, I think I know the answer to that, but uh, I'll <laughs> leave it at
1: that just now. There are a number of mathematicians in the audience and I see. We've, I think we must conclude uh, at this point. Um, I'm sure... First of all, that Professor Mackay has whetted our appetite for his forthcoming lectures. Next week is The God of the Covenant, uh, and I very much hope that uh, he'll return next week. And also invite your friends as well, because they've missed something tonight which they should have been at, and please feel that they can be invited next week as well. Um, I think we had a fascinating lecture tonight, great clarity and great enthusiasm. For God's word, and I'd like to express uh, our appreciation t- tonight for, for that lecture and for answering our questions. Can we uh, just express our appreciation to Professor? John? <clears throat>